right, so today uh, the passage that we will be uh, coming from is, is uh, as Nick pointed out, 1 Peter 5, um, verses 1 through 11. So I'll open up by just reading the, the passage, and then we'll kind of, uh, we'll get into it and see what the Lord has to say, uh, say to us. Uh, Peter, all right, Peter uh, writes, uh, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray. Uh, Father God, as we uh, come to you today and uh, go into your word, I just pray, Lord, that it's just less of me and more of you. Lord, let your word go forth and, and accomplish what you have already set, set in your will to, for it to do. Father, as we go through this passage, let us be encouraged. Um, let us see your goodness and your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Have you ever watched the survival show? Survivor, Alone, Life Below Zero, Naked and Afraid, Fear Games, I mean, Fear Factor, or even Squid Games. The premise is the same. A person or a group of persons are placed in the harshest of environments and forced to survive and escape the danger that is all around them. Dropped off in deserts, uh, on mountains, in jungles, extreme weather, no shelter, no clothes, no food, no water, and no protection from wild animals. It almost seems impossible to survive. The reality shows really show us the difference between the people just trying to get some TV time and the professionals that have been trained to survive and be resilient in a hostile environment. Why would anyone suffer like that? I'll tell you why. The money. <laughs> it's the prize, that's why. Sometimes, we can feel like we are on a survival show. Life happens seemingly out of nowhere, and we can find ourselves in a strange place having to figure out how to make it without throwing our hands up, retreating, and just giving up. Some of us are trying to survive this economy, stretching our dollars as inflation seems to be devouring our savings. Uh, some of us are trying to survive our jobs, dealing with bad managers and unfavorable policies or challenging assignments and unreliable teams. Uh, some of us are trying to survive our family, conflict with our spouses, or, or raising kids who don't want to obey, or, or rifts between extended family. All of these things and more, all the issues of life are constantly pressuring us, 
constantly making us feel like we are just keeping our head above water, like we are just surviving. We wake up like, what is this? Life isn't supposed to be this way. I'm not supposed to suffer. The church that Peter is writing to knew all too well what it felt like to be in survival mode, what it felt like to suffer. They were exiled in a spiritually and politically hostile land. They were being ruled under the fist of an emperor that didn't know the Lord. They were alienated. They were oppressed. They were hated. Yet throughout the book, Peter is teaching them how to remain resilient in a place of hostility, to remain watchful and on guard for the devil. He's teaching the leaders how to shepherd, the church how to be humble, and everyone how to stand firm in their faith. The scriptures are clear. To those that are devoted to Christ, we will experience suffering. It may be because of our own sin, or it may be because of other people's sin. But because we live in a fallen world, we will suffer. It is to be both expected and accepted. Suffering is not only reserved for Christians, but for those that follow Jesus, suffering isn't to be avoided, but embraced. And because God cares for his children, we should remain faithful to Christ. Here, Peter lays out how we should live even when suffering. Um, just as a bit of a background on Peter and this letter, the apostle Peter was one of the 12 disciple apostles of Jesus. Uh, he played a prominent role among the disciples and was one of Jesus' closest companions. In fact, other than Jesus, Peter is the most mentioned person in the New Testament. His name appears more than 150 times. Peter was known for his impulsive nature and his strong faith. Peter was there when Jesus Peter was there when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter was there at the Last Supper, and Peter was there in the garden when Jesus was arrested. But then, Peter's biggest failure is put on full display for all of history to see. Peter denied Jesus to avoid suffering. So we could think that this letter, which mentions suffering more than any other book in the Bible, is, is somewhat of an issue for Peter. It's like a, somewhat of his own conviction speaking. But these aren't the only scriptures that deal with suffering. So uh, just really quick before I kind of get into the text, we'll just take a look at a couple uh, and, and see what the Bible has to say about suffering. Uh, in Luke, uh, Jesus says, And whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Uh, Jesus says in John 16, 33, says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Paul writes to the Philippians, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Paul also writes in Romans, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And I, I looked up the word provided in, in Greek and Hebrew, and it, it means exactly what it says. <laughs> provided we suffer. We will be heirs provided we suffer. So when Peter writes, beloved, in, in Peter, 1 Peter 4, 12, when Peter writes, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. We should understand that for Christian, 
for the Christian, there should be an expectation of suffering. And we should have the heart of one willing to suffer for Christ. Peter's not only one that has, uh, Peter's not only one that has witnessed those sufferings, as he states in his opening verses of this passage, but he is one that is still walking toward more suffering to come. So I imagine that as he dictates this letter to the exiled church to encourage them, he is also encouraging himself to rejoice, to be counted worthy, to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. Peter begins this passage by exhorting the elders, the leadership, which brings us to our first point. Because God cares for his children, elders should shepherd like Jesus. Peter calls the elders to shepherd, to be shepherds of the flock. He certainly alludes to his own calling. At an unforgettable breakfast by the Lake of Galilee, uh, the risen Lord Jesus and Peter had a conversation after they had eaten, and it was recorded in the Gospel of John, in, in, which, in which Jesus asked Peter. Uh, you may kind of remember that Jesus, after he's resurrected, he comes to Peter, and he says, Peter, uh, Jesus said to Pete, Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And, and Peter said to him, he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And then Jesus says, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Jesus had restored Peter to his apostolic office and charged him to be a shepherd to Christ's little ones. Jesus charged Peter to feed his sheep and tend his lamb. The two major tasks of the shepherd. In that charge, Jesus was calling Peter to have part in his own care for his disciples. Elders should shepherd like Jesus. Jesus had rest- uh, What does that look like? Elders should shepherd like Jesus. What does that look like? If we look at the verses... Uh, of two and three in the passage, it says, starting at verse two, it says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So he instructs them to shepherd willingly, shepherd eagerly, and shepherd gently. So shepherd willingly. Not by contrast, but willingly means an elder should not be doing the job simply out of obligation or because someone has to do it, but because the elder has freely and willingly chosen to carry out this valuable work. Paul said to aspire or to long for or to aim or or seek ambitiously, uh, the office of overseer is a noble task. No one should be pressured into accepting a church office, which he does not really want to have. Have you ever received service from someone who didn't really want to be there? Like, you may get what you want, but it's not very pleasant, right? There's a barbecue place that I uh, used to frequent, and every so often now in Gardena, it had really, really good barbecue. But there was this uh, mature or older woman who was probably one of the founders or something that worked there, and she just wasn't very polite, right? Well, that's kind of being politically correct. She she was mean, right? And and everyone, everyone knew it. So... Uh, when you would go, people would expect her to be mean, but the food was just too good not to show up, right? It was just too good, you know? But, well, God is not like that. The grace of God is irresistible. He's just too good. 
but he doesn't want ungrudging service. So if an elder feels like, well, I'll do it because no one else will, or uh, you ask, so I guess, then that elder can stay seated. God doesn't want that. He will provide for his people, and he will find another way. Shepherd, the verse goes on, it says, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. So shepherd eagerly. Is Peter saying pastors shouldn't make money, or, or is he saying pastors shouldn't make money shamefully, like with greedy or selfish motives, or by dishonest or unfair practices? Well, the second view seems more likely, both because Peter says shameful gain, not just gain, and because scripture elsewhere it is right for at least some elders, probably those whose uh, full-time or source of, their full, all their time is spent doing pastoring work, uh, to earn money from this work. So the desire for earnings must be correct, um, also at least as part of their motivation. But the contrast is not, not for shameful gain, but for honest gain, but a much higher one. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Peter is saying, have a I can't wait attitude when it comes to leading God's people. The love of the Lord should motivate elders to imitate the care of the good shepherd. Greed and selfish interests are so near at hand in all human hearts that especially in this work, they must constantly be guarded against. To raise our status and earn all we can is a temptation to the office of elder that must always be guarded against. Eldership is not the corporate ladder and shouldn't be treated as such. Being eager to please the Lord should be your motivation not riches and fame. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So shepherd gently. The work of an elder isn't the work of a dictator, but rather an imperfect example of following the perfect examples of Jesus. And to be gently doesn't mean to be soft, but rather to shepherd like Jesus. Lead less like a sledgehammer and more like a rubber mallet. Forceful enough to get the job done, but gentle enough not to cause damage. This doesn't mean that an elder doesn't tell you what to do. That is literally part of the job description that Paul gives in Timothy. Preach the word in season and out of season to rebuke, exhort, correct, teaching the people to obey the Lord's teaching. It does mean that, it does mean that he leads the sheep to trust and obey the chief shepherd by being an example, of, by trusting and obeying himself. It means he embodies the characteristics of an elder that Paul laid out, blameless as a steward of God above reproach, faithful husband to his wife, sober-minded, not a drunk, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, non-violent, gentle, not a lover of money, and a good manager of his home. This is all accomplished by the grace of God and not a result of self-justification. Elders should shepherd like Jesus, the chief shepherd, willingly, eagerly, and gently. This takes the heart of a servant. So how do you know uh, someone has a heart of a servant, or how, how do you know if you have a heart of a servant? I've heard it said before, is, is how do you respond when someone treats you like one, right? A servant should almost be invisible. It should be about God and not about the work that I do. So what's, what's the motivation? The scripture says, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Peter writes this whole letter as an apostle of Jesus Christ. From start to finish, he speaks for his Lord. He addresses the elders so that they too may minister as servants of the Lord Jesus. He is concerned with their motives more than with their methods. 
Peter knows that their relation to Jesus Christ will shape the way they care for his people. To know the Lord is to seek to be like the Lord. Elders will be examples to their flock as they follow the example of the chief shepherd who gave his life for the sheep. To speak of the chief shepherd is to remind the elders that they are only under shepherds. The authority, their authority is not original. They minister only in Christ's name and according to his word. So we can't, so we can trust the care of God because he is the chief shepherd who ultimately cares for our souls. And he has promised that our suffering will not be in vain. He has something much better for us, a reward, a crown of glory that will never fade away. The scripture continues, says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. This brings us to point two. Point two is because God cares for his children, we should all live with humility. You that are younger be subject to the elders command submission to the governing authority of the elders within the church. Be subject points to a general willingness to support the elders' direction. So have humility towards the elders. God has established the role of elders in the church for the care and well-being of his people. Being humble or having humility towards the elders means submitting to their leadership. This aligns with God's design and order for the church. It reflects recognition of God's authority and wisdom in appointing leaders and humble willingness to follow his ways. Elders provide spiritual guidance and oversight. Elders provide spiritual leadership and guidance. They are responsible for teaching and interpreting the scriptures, providing pastoral care, and overseeing the affairs of the church. They ensure the church operates according to the biblical principles and wisdom. Elders provide accountability and discipleship. When you place yourself under the care of an elder, you are placing yourself under their authority and accountability. Unless they are leading you into sin, when you leave a church because you simply don't like the, a turn the leadership has made, uh, what you're saying is that I'm unwilling to be under the authority of another. When you only submit to people you agree with, you are actually only submitting to yourself. Elders provide unity and harmony. Humble submission to the elders create a culture Elders provide unity and harmony. Oops. Humble submission to elders create a culture of unity within the church. It helps prevent divisions and conflict that could come up from people following their own agendas or interpretations. When you recognize the authority of an elder, you contribute to the harmony and cohesiveness of the church. That is there, uh, that's there for our common good of all. Again, submitting to elders does not mean blind obedience or relinquishing personal responsibility. God establishes a plurality of elders, which helps with making sure they're being faithful to the Bible and leading according to God's word. Humility should be mutual. When there is trust and respect, together we edify the church and glorify God. Then he says, have humility towards each other. When we are humble towards each other, we will put others first. Humility involves valuing and considering others as more important than oneself. It's setting aside your personal desires 
ambitions and rights for the sake of others. It's being selfless. Being gentle and patient with others when we're humble toward each other. It's showing kindness and, and compassion and understanding. When disagreements arise, we approach them with gentleness and respect. We seek reconciliation and unity, not just asserting our dominance or, or just uh, seeking to prove ourselves right. When we're humble towards each other, we listen and we learn. No one has a monopoly on wisdom and understanding, so humility involves listening to different perspectives and seeking to understand. Forgiveness, when we're humble towards each other, um, we will forgive or we will have forgiveness and reconciliation. When we recognize how much we have been forgiven, how can we not forgive? In Matthew 18, Jesus tells a parable of an unforgiving servant. Uh, so he owed his master, uh, the servant owed his master 10,000 talents. I didn't look that up to convert it to today's dollars, but it was a ton of money. His master was going to throw him in jail, but he begged for forgiveness. Um, he begged the master for forgiveness, and then the master forgave his debt and released him. Then the servant goes out, and he finds someone who owes him 100 denarii. Again, I don't know what that is in today's dollars, but I imagine it's just a little bit. So the servant, what he did was he grabbed him and chokes him and telling him to pay what he owes. Then he threw him in jail. So the master heard, it, heard about this, and he found out and he called him a wicked servant. At the cross, Jesus forgave us an infinite debt. When we harbor unforgiveness for others, we are like the wicked servant. So Peter is encouraging us to have humility towards one another. Seek forgiveness and reconciliation because we have been forgiven so much. Lastly, he says, have humility towards God. You want to make an enemy of God? Be proud. The scripture says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. It's like God set before us opposition and grace. I say choose grace. Peter says to be humble. Peter says to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. What does that mean? To humble yourself under the mighty hand of God means to acknowledge and submit to God's authority and his sovereignty in your life. It involves recognizing your limitations and weaknesses. While recognizing God's power and wisdom, humility means having a modest view of yourself. It's a willingness to learn and to grow and a readiness to follow God's guidance and purpose. It's an attitude that really fosters a sense of, of, of reverence, gratitude, and trust in God's plan. When we do this, God exalts us at the proper time, and his timing is always right. And it goes from, from having humility and being, humbling ourselves before God into casting all of our anxieties on him because he cares for you. Every uh, Sometimes um, I have the privilege of going to pick up my oldest daughter from school. And when I get there, she comes out and she sees me and she runs towards me and she takes her backpack and she almost throws it to me, right? Almost throws it at me. And uh, I saw, so that she can hop on her scooter and, and ride it and, and ride it home. It's a joy for me to carry that for her, right? Because although it may be heavy for her, I'm more than capable. It may be a burden for her, but it's not a burden for me. God is like that, right? That's what God is like. That's why he tells us to cast our anxieties on him, right? It's not the, the, the language here, again, the language here was cast, right? 
And we can look at that, and in some places it says to lay down our burdens, but to cast means it's like some kind of effort, like we're effort. It's, it takes something from us to throw our anxieties to him. And, and Jesus and God, he is so joyful to carry those and to take them from us. And when we do that, and so I guess that the question is like, what, what fears, what anxieties are you carrying? What do you have that needs to be casted to the Lord? God invites you not to just lay them down, but to cast them upon him. That involves, again, energy. That's what it looks like to cast your enemies on the Lord, right? When we cast our worries on him, it shows that we acknowledge our weakness and his strength. It glorifies him. When we carry it, it dishonors God. It says that we don't trust that he can, that he can carry it or that he doesn't care. And both of those are lies, right? We can trust him to carry it, and he cares for us. So he invites us to just cast our anxieties on him. The scripture goes on. It says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood. Throughout the world, and after, uh, throughout the world, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Because God cares for his children, we should resist evil boldly. We come to this point in the passage, and Peter is saying, be careful the devil prowls around like a roaring lion. It goes from cast your cares upon me to be careful. First, I think it's worthy to point out that the devil is real. In popular culture, there's a wide variety of deceptions of the devil. These deceptions range from the comical to the abstract. Sometimes uh, the devil is the red little man with the horns and the tail uh, that, that's in hell uh, and a pitchfork urging people towards sin. Other times, the devil is merely a personification meant to put a face to evil. But his actual existence and attributes don't depend on any individual's beliefs about him. He objectively exists. And the Bible gives us the accurate picture of who Satan is and how he interacts with reality. Satan is not just an idea or a symbol for evil. He is real. He has power, but he is not omnipotent or all-powerful. He has presence, but he is not omnipresent or present at all times. He knows things, but he is not omniscient or all-knowing. He is a created and finite being. Having been created, he is not equal to God. In fact, when he led a rebellion against God, he lost. And you can read about that in Revelations. <laughs> Having lost that rebellion, he was cast out of heaven. The devil does not rule hell either, despite what we may think with Dante's Inferno. Uh, but hell is a place created as a punishment for him. It's important to recognize this because people tend to live at two extremes when it comes to the devil. The first one is, you might have met a person like this, that everything is the devil, right? Everything is the devil. And then the second person is, the devil isn't even real. Everything is the devil. People tend to blame everything on the devil. You know, like, I got fired from my job, right? The devil is attacking me. 
Uh, you, you mean to tell me that like that showing up late and leaving early or, 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 or being unreliable or not being able to do the actual job had nothing to do with it? No, that, 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 that's, that's not how, how it works, right? I'm just saying, it ain't always the devil. The devil isn't real people. They lean the other way. Everything that happens can't be attributed to just mental health. I, I know mental health is a real thing, and I'm not discounting the very credible ways that it affects people or the people that mental health professionals or counselors provide. Um, but what I am saying is sometimes mental health is not the reason. Sometimes people are demon-possessed. We see in, uh, in Matthew 8, uh, Jesus encounters two men that are demon-possessed. And they, they say to him, what have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to, to torment us before our time? And, and then they begged him to cast them into the pigs, which Jesus did. These men, the Bible tells us that these men tormented the town, the people of that town. The Bible says that they were so fierce that no one can pass that way. If those men were in Long Beach today, we will be tempted to send mental health professionals to help them. Sometimes that isn't sufficient, and the power of God is needed to cast the demons out. The point I want to make is this. The devil is real, so be careful. Be watchful and be vigilant. Here Peter describes the devil as a lion on the prowl. Sometimes the Bible describes the devil as a bird hunter, meaning he just sets traps, right? We can look about look at that in Psalms. I think Psalms 91, uh, it says he, starting at the first verse, it says he who, who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. So sometimes the devil sets traps. Sometimes he masquerades as an angel of light, meaning he is a deceiver. Second Corinthians says, and no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. But here, in this passage, Peter uses a prowling, roaring lion. I'm sure you've heard a sermon about the devil uh, being a lion, but he says, you know, don't worry. Uh, at the cross, he was declawed and, and defanged, so you have nothing to worry about. Well, that is not how the recipients of this letter would have taken it. Edmund Cowley writes in his commentary on 1 Peter, he says, some who receives Peter's letter would have strong horror they had seen. They would have strong horror they had seen human blood dripping from the chops of lions and the, and the gory spectacles of Roman amphitheaters. The time was approaching when Ignatius would anticipate his death in the Roman Colosseum. He says, let me be given to the wild beasts, for through them I can attain unto God. I am God's wheat, and I am grounded by the teeth of wild beasts, that I may be found purebred. Come fire and cross and grapplings with wild beasts, retching of bones, hacking of limbs, crushing of my whole body. Come cruel tortures of the devil to assail me, only be it mine to attain unto Jesus Christ. Peter's instruction to the church is to resist him and to stand firm. 
So in preparing for this, I, I just looked up what it would, uh, what to do if you encounter a lion. And this was the first time I ever looked that up because <laughs> the way I live, the chances of me encountering a lion is like virtually zero, right? It would, you would read a story like lion attacks man in a local coffee shop, which it, I'm not saying it can't happen, but it, it's, it's virtually zero. And, and when I looked it up, I, I saw on the National Park Service, it said that if you encounter a lion, so here it is for you hikers, if you do encounter a lion, it says stay calm and hold your ground. Do not run and do not crouch down or bend over. Now this advice seems remarkably similar to the advice given to Christians by Peter in 1 Peter uh, 5 and 8. He says to be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. It says, resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. The word resist means to stand in your place and push back strongly. On what basis should you do this and with what resources, right? You should do this not with armed force or belligerent methods, but with the calm and firm resilience on the doctrines of the Christian faith. That's what the faith refers to. Not so much the faith that you exhibit in your heart, not just the I believe, but the object of your faith, which is the truth about Jesus Christ that is revealed to us in scripture. So don't let your feelings overwhelm you. Don't forget what you've been taught. And yes, you should realize that you are not experiencing an extra special challenge that no one else has faced. You are encountering the same kind of suffering and misfortune that your brothers and sisters are experiencing throughout the world. That is how the devil roars. He threatens you with suffering and hardship for following Christ, and sometimes his suffering actually takes place. The roar is the prospect of suffering, and the loudest roar is the suffering itself. This suffering will not devour you. However, if you firmly stand your ground, relying on the doctrine of Christ revealed in scripture, just as other fellow believers are doing throughout the world, remember what the scripture teaches and respond accordingly, no matter how afraid you may feel. We can do this because God cares for us. As the scripture states, he will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us, and to him be dominion forever and ever. As we reflect on 1 Peter, um, the passage in 1 Peter, and the three essential points it presents, we are reminded to provide to, we are reminded of the profound truth that God cares deeply for his children. This care is demonstrated through his provision of faithful shepherds, our call to live with humility, and the strength to resist, resist evil boldly. Yet, amidst all of this, there is an even greater message of hope, and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the pinnacle of God's care for his children. It is the ultimate demonstration of his love as he sent his son, Jesus, to reconcile us to himself. Through Jesus' sacrificial death and his victorious resurrection, we have been offered forgiveness of sins, eternal life, 
and the assurance of God's abiding presence. Now, when I was a, a, a freshman at uh, Cal State Long Beach, I remember learning about Pascal's Wager. Um, if you've never heard of it, don't worry, I'm going to tell you what it is. Blaise Pascal, he was a French mathematician and philosopher. He was a, physis a physicist, and he's listed as a, a theologian. Uh, he was a pretty smart guy. So Pascal's wager is basically an argument as to why one should believe everything, um, believe everything this Bible has to say, right? It's ba it basically goes like this. It says, a rational person should live as though God exists and seek to believe in God. If God does not exist, such a person will, only, will have only a, a finite loss, maybe if some pleasures, some luxuries, whereas if God does exist, they stand to receive infinite gains as presented by eternity in heaven and avoid infinite losses as an eternity in hell. So it's like, you know, it's, it's better to live as God exists and find out he doesn't than to live as he doesn't and find out he does. And as a young, impressionable person, I was like, man, that makes a lot of sense to me. I said, wow, that, 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 that was, I thought it was kind of brilliant. It made so much sense, I would tell my friends that. Well, Paul had a different take on the thought. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul said, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So Paul is saying, if, if, if the way I'm living now, if God doesn't exist, we should be pitied more than everybody. Now to the first century Christian, Pascal's wager would have been laughable. To those receiving this letter from Peter, it would have been laughable. Some pleasures and some luxuries? No, Mr. Pascal, it's much more than that. And for us, sitting here today, we too should find this philosophy laughable. By God's grace, we do not have to deal with being persecuted. As some of our Christian brothers and sisters do in the East, right? Here, we don't, we don't deal with persecution the way they do. And we may have the attitude we may have developed the attitude that Jesus suffered for me, so I shouldn't have to. But as Paul wrote to the Philippians, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Empty yourselves, be a servant, and humble yourselves by becoming obedient to the point of death, even a shameful death. Remember that, uh, that famous breakfast by the, the Lake of Galilee with uh, Peter and, and Jesus? Well, there, Jesus didn't only tell Peter to tend his sheep and to feed his lambs, uh, but he also told him by the, the time of death that he was going to die. He told him that he would suffer. So history, and then history tells us that Peter's execution was ordered by a Roman emperor, Nero, who blamed the city's Christians for a terrible fire that ravaged Rome. Peter requested to be crucified upside down as he felt unworthy to die in the same manner as, the, as Christ. So as he, he penned this letter, I'm sure Peter had that, that, that suffering death in mind. So as we endure suffering and strive to live faithfully, let us anchor ourselves in the gospel. May we cling to Jesus and experience the transformative power of God's grace and find strength in Christ's redemptive work. And let us be reminded of this. We are not alone in our trials, for Jesus walks with us, giving us comfort and guidance and hope. May our endurance through suffering 
and our faithful living be a testimony to the power of the gospel. Let us hold fast to Jesus, for he is the foundation of our faith and the source of our strength. And let us walk in the truth that God cares for his children. And through his care, may we find strength and courage and internal hope to endure suffering, to live faithfully, and to proclaim the life-changing gospel to the world. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you that we serve a God who knows suffering. Lord, you've suffered in so many ways. Sometimes we can't even comprehend the way you have. Lord, you know what it feels like to lose a child because you lost your child on the cross. You know what it feels like to be blamed and to be mocked and to be scoffed because Jesus endured that for us. You know what it feels like to be hated. You know what it feels like to be tortured. You know all suffering all too well. And you did it for the glory of the Father. Lord, so let us have a mind that's like Christ. To not want to live a life to escape suffering and to build a, a life that we would never have to endure. But let us faithfully walk towards suffering for the glory of Christ. Give us that courage and the hope that we need in order to do so. And let your will be done in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.